uh, this morning. Scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, 15 through 23. You can find that on page 6 of your bulletin if you want to follow along in English. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy name, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you. Buenos dias. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Efesios, capítulo 1, versículos 15 al 23. Por eso yo por mi parte, desde que me enteré de que de la fe que tienen en el Señor Jesús y del amor que muestran por todos los santos, no he dejado de dar gracias por ustedes al recordarlos en mis oraciones. Pido que el Dios de nuestro Señor Jesucristo, el Padre glorioso, les dé el espíritu de sabiduría y de revelación para que lo conozcan mejor. Pido también que les sean iluminados los ojos del corazón para que sepan a qué esperanza Él los ha llamado, cuál es la riqueza de su gloriosa herencia entre los santos y cuán incomparable es la grandeza de su, de su poder a favor de los que creemos. Ese poder es la fuerza grandiosa y eficaz que Dios ejerció en Cristo cuando lo resucitó de entre los muertos y lo sentó a su derecha en las regiones celestiales, muy por encima de todo gobierno y autoridad, poder y dominio, y de cualquier otro nombre que se invoque, no solo en este mundo, sino también en el venidero. Dios sometió a todas las cosas al dominio de Cristo, y lo dio como la cabeza de todo a la iglesia. Esta, que es su cuerpo, es la plenitud de aquel que lo llena todo por completo. Thank you, Kara and Daniel. Say a word of prayer before we look at this passage. God, we thank you for already all that you have done and been for us in this service, just blessing us in, in countless different ways, filling our hearts, giving us reason to praise you, meeting us where we're at. And we pray that you would do all of that even again now in the coming minutes as we look at this 
piece of the Word of God. We need your help. We pray that you would unplug our minds and our hearts and our hands, that we would respond to you, that we wouldn't listen passively but actively. In fact, that you would give us your Holy Spirit who would be active amongst us, changing our lives by the power of your word. We long for that. We invite you to be here. Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Who's someone in your life that you are deeply grateful for? Or have you ever had someone in your life, maybe even now, maybe recently, where you think about them and you can't stop thanking God for them. Filled with gratitude, overflowing with gratitude. Have you ever had such a relationship? In fact, where a person fills your mind so much that you only want the best for them. You're wishing that this part of their life would increase. That part of their life would be a a place of flourishing. In other words, where you might be praying consciously or consciously nonstop that God would pour out his blessing upon their lives. Have you known anyone like that? Had a relationship like that? That's the sort of dynamic that the Apostle Paul apparently has with the Ephesian church, Christians, here that he's writing to, where he says, I heard about your faith, about your love, and I can't stop thinking about you. I can't stop thanking God for you. I can't stop praying for you because he can't stop loving them, carrying them in his heart. Have you ever had relationships like that? In fact, the church is the sort of place that's supposed to be a place that cultivates that sort of intimacy, that sort of relentless gratitude and love and prayer that's exchanged one member to another. Paul is praying, and here he's sharing what he prays ceaselessly for the Ephesian church. And that's what we're going to look at quickly here. And really, we can break it down into three different parts. He prays for three things for the Ephesians. One, he prays for knowledge. Two, he prays for hope. And three, he prays for power. That they might get knowledge from God and hope from God and power from God. What do those things mean? And what do they have to do with you? First, Paul prays for knowledge. He says in verses 17 and 18, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know. He's praying that these Christians would grow in knowledge. And of course, you might be someone who doesn't identify yourself as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And you might say, well, actually, I think I know God. Actually, I I think uh, I wouldn't really say I don't know him or her, wherever your perspective is coming from. And that's partly right. You know, the Bible does affirm that every person has some fragmented knowledge of God, whether if it's through nature or through our consciences or through our different experiences. But notice, Paul is actually writing here to Christians, which is what makes it so interesting 
At one point, they already have come to know God through Jesus in a unique and saving way. An infinitely intimate relationship with God through Jesus. Paul even says in verse 15, I'm hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus. He's talking to Christians, and yet he says, I'm praying that you would know God. So what does he mean? He's talking about a deeper, more intimate, life-impacting way of knowing God. He's praying that they would know God, and then that, that knowledge would electrify their entire lives. You see, in the Bible, knowing God is never, never just book knowledge. Knowing God is never simply what you might call head knowledge. Don't get me wrong. Knowing God does involve facts, and it does involve information about God, just like any relationship involves facts and information about who a person is, where they're from, where they grew up. You heard some of it in Chris's testimony as well. But it's not less than that, but it is certainly more than that. Because Paul is talking about a spiritual knowing, a personal knowing. Not a knowing about God, but a knowing God himself. You see, far too many religious people and far too many even Christians know God only by gossip and rumor, but have never actually stood face to face with him and say, I know him. Far too many people go on with life satisfied that I have X, Y, Z pieces of facts about God that may even be accurate and may even be true and may even be good theology. But the only way that you know how to interact with God is studying about him or philosophizing about him. But when the Bible says things like you love him with a love that is an undying love, you blink and have no idea what the Bible is talking about. Some professing Christians know God to the extent that maybe you know a person online or follow them on Twitter? You know, do you have a personal relationship with some celebrity uh, that you follow? God wants to be more than your Facebook friend. God wants to be in truth, a personal relationship. And you think of all the different types of metaphors that the Bible uses to help us to understand just how intimate this relationship is supposed to be. Where we're told that God desires to relate to us as a friend to a friend. It's mind-blowing. You can be the friend of God. Or as a husband and wife relate to one another. That kind of emotional investment, that kind of knowledge, every detail about who you are and your desires and preferences and dreams and sorrows. Or a child to a father or even to a servant, to a master, or a soldier, to a general. But notice also that this knowledge is impossible without God's help. God revealing it to us. We're told that Paul here is praying that you would get, that you would have the spirit 
of wisdom and revelation, that God would give the Spirit to you so that you may know him better. This agent of revelation, the teacher of our souls, this is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that makes sense. How can we personally know a God who is transcendent, who blows our minds, who cannot be contained, who's not like us, who's holy, a seemingly unknowable God? How can you know him? If it's going to happen at all, God is going to have to help you, even do it for you. Friends, has God been feeling like a stranger to you? Maybe you've been saying, I I know him, but I don't really know him. Even if you might be someone who is a professing Christian. Does the idea of spending time with God seem awkward to you? Even though it surely wouldn't seem awkward if you were talking about a friend and most certainly a spouse. Are are you getting to know God or a certain piece of his character or personality that you didn't know before? Because real relationships grow, don't they? At least if we want them to. Have you ever said to God, I love you, God? Have you ever said it lately? Dear friends, whether if you're just starting to get to know God or if you already do, maybe this week, or maybe even today, or maybe even right now in your hearts, you can pray, God, I want to know you more. Paul prays for knowledge. But secondly, he prays for hope. He prays for hope. In verses 18 to, uh, and following, he tells us that he's praying that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesian Christians would have spiritual light shined upon them, that they would be enlightened so that they could see the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He's praying that you would have hope today. And what is hope? The way we usually use that word, hope is what? Wishful thinking? Uh, Hope is something you just dream about? Hope is maybe something I long for. But when the Bible uses this word, it always means a confident expectation of the future that God has in store for you. It's not just wishful thinking, unsure and uncertain that it will ever materialize in your life. No, hope in the Bible is a sure thing. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of the future that God has in store for you. And Paul says this hope is the hope of the riches of a glorious inheritance. The riches of God's favor that you're starting to cash in on now and receive as a blessing today. But one day you will receive in full measure when God comes to restore and renew all things. A sure hope of a future inheritance For example, the Bible talks about the hope of a righteous verdict. That one day when all of humanity stands before God on the day of judgment, that God will actually look upon every detail of every flawed thing in your life and soul, every selfish act 
Every selfish thought, every selfish motive, every sinful piece of resistance against God and other people. And point by point by point, if you've embraced Jesus, he will say, you're innocent. Because Jesus had paid the price for you for all your sins. You're righteous, you're righteous, you're righteous. The hope of a perfect verdict in Christ. We're told about the hope of a purified heart that one day, can you believe it? One day you will have a sinless soul. No more selfishness seeping into the cracks of the motives of everything you do. At least that's the case for me. No more sin. No more envy. I've been thinking this last week about how much life, my life at least, is full of little, little bits of envy, just looking at other people and saying, why not me? Me too, come on. No more of that. No more sin in our lives and no more brokenness in our relationships. Perfected community, the hope of a tearless life, that one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more loss, the hope of justice. No more brokenness in our communities, in our world systems. No more inequity in the way that resources are distributed. Everyone will have what God calls shalom, wholeness, life as it was meant to be, as God created it to be. Hope of a perfected physical world. Can you imagine no more death, no more decaying bodies, no more chronic pain and illness, no more loss because of death? The whole physical creation one day will be renewed. Everything in life will be as it ought to be. And you say, well, what does this supposed hope have to do with me? Do you understand the hope that you have for tomorrow has a really powerful shaping influence on the way you live today. So, for example, a couple weeks ago or a week or two ago, actually, we're still kind of in it. It's been cold, hasn't it? And we had this nutty thing intruding in our lives called polar vortex. Extremely cold, and it's just wild. You've experienced this. It doesn't matter how short the distance is. It just hurts. And you can't wait to get to where you are trying to go. No matter how bundled up you are, all you need is one little square inch of exposed skin, and you're absolutely miserable, right? I mean, some of you, you know, some of you are from places like Florida and warm places, and you're just going crazy right now. You don't know what's happened to the world. And I noticed as I'm trudging through the cold for me, It's hard, it was hard, and there were stretches where it was really difficult getting from one place to the next. But I knew ultimately I was going to be all right. Because I knew I had a destination, and I knew for the most part that it was going to be pretty warm when I got there. In fact, I don't know if you found yourself doing this, but you tell yourself as you're walking through the cold, almost there, I'm almost there, the metro station's almost there, the house is almost there, the office is almost there. Z-Burger is almost there, whatever it might be, but you know you're almost there, and so you can take another step or five or ten or fifty until you finally get there. 
because your hope is just right there. By contrast, of course, I don't know if you've heard of this story of this Kentucky inmate. This guy in the middle of this polar vortex onslaught escaped from a minimum security facility in Lexington. There, just like here, temperatures dropped into the low single digits. The wind chill was at 20 below zero. He was free. He did it. He got out. But it was so cold, he turned himself back in. <laughs> Started getting frostbite, couldn't handle it anymore, found the nearest motel. They thought he was kidding. He said, excuse me, can you please call the law on me? And they did. Besides his bad timing, what was the difference? No end in sight. No relief in sight. No Z-burger in sight where he could finally stop and get some warmth and rest. You see, whatever we believe about the future has incredible power to shape how we live today. And so if you have that hope of a righteous verdict one day on the day of judgment, you know, even today you can resolve to live by love and not by guilt. Where you can actually start living not doing everything just because I feel so bad or because I feel like I'm in trouble if I don't. Because you know for sure that God doesn't condemn you. Or maybe if you know that you have the hope that one day sin will be no more in your life. Sometimes it gives you strength to know that I can fight on because this isn't going on forever. It will come to an end and so I can fight. Or if you know that one day all your relationships will be perfected in Christ, one day it's going to be as my heart craves it might be. You can deal a little bit better with disappointment in your relationships, can't you? That you're not demanding that you have paradise right here, right now, at least not in every way. And so you're not running away from people as much, or you're not blasting people when they hurt you or disappoint you. doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt. But you're not demanding perfection in paradise because you know it's not then, not yet, not now. If you know one day that the whole world will be restored, every part of life, not just the spiritual stuff, but the physical stuff in this world, then you'll start to realize on a daily basis the things you put your hand to matters to God. Your work matters to God. Your physical bodies matter to God. What you do with the trees and the buildings and the trash in your alleys matter to God because he's not just throwing it in the garbage heap of the cosmos, he has invested the blood of his son to redeem it all. And if you believe that about this future, this hope, it changes the way you live today. Dear friends, do you have this sort of hope? Thirdly, the Apostle Paul prays not just for knowledge and not just for hope, he also prays for power. He prays that God would help the Ephesians to know his incomparably, incomparably great power for us 
who believe, verse 19. And the different words that Paul uses here in this passage in the original Greek language, it's, it's almost funny how much he's just piling on uh, big word after big word to try to help us understand what he really longs for us to understand. Uh, he, incomparably great power, they are words that you might distill into our English forms of the word hyper and mega and dynamic or dynamite. And as one teacher has put it, Paul is saying, what I really want you to know is the hyper mega dynamite of God. And that he has given it to you. He's giving you power like you can't get your mind around. He points out the intensity of God's power. In fact, you understand that he says, God has given to you power such that we can say in verse 19, that that power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when God raised Christ from the dead. And so think about it just for a second here. And I don't mean this to be a precise scientific analysis. Some of you mathematicians and scientists are going to get on my case about this later on. But do you understand that God has given you at least the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead? How much power, how much energy does it take to raise a dead body to life? Okay, maybe we can reason backwards a little bit to say, well, how much energy is stored up in a human body? And so if you turn the switch off, well, how do you turn it back on? And how much would that really take? Well, according to some calculations, raising this question, how much nuclear energy is stored up in a human body? According to one source, I don't know how reliable it is, but you know, this is an illustration, not a conference, all right? One source says a human body that weighs roughly 150 pounds can produce over six quintillion joules. Quintillion, so million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion joules. What's up? Preach it. Here we go. Quintillion. That's Greek. All right. Joules. Six quintillion joules stored up in every single one of our body. And you've got a few more pounds, you've got a few more joules. <laughs> Which they say is enough energy to keep the entire United States running for 16 years. In each of you. Okay, so you turn the light switch off, or you turn the power lever down, and run down to zero... How do you get it back up to six quintillion joules? That's what it takes to raise a dead body to life, let's say, enough power to run the U.S. for 16 years. But let me add to that this, because that's a lot of energy, and that's a lot of potential power. But let me add to this. Jesus didn't just get resuscitated back to life. He came back with a resurrected body with perfected life didn't just come back as normal flesh and blood. He came back as an indestructible body. Not an ounce of decay or death remaining within him. 
A body that would be full of life forever and ever and ever. So changed was he, though he was still in the same form as a man, as a resurrected man, they barely even recognized him. So how much more energy would it take for God to take his body and make it now heavenly and perfected on top of those six quintillion joules of energy? Listen, listen. You have nothing less than the very same power available to you today as the same power that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's a lot of power. What's making you feel weak today? What are you facing where you're saying, I can't overcome that? What are you facing where you, you're saying, I, I, I feel like I'm not able to break through you know you have power. The incomparably greatness of the power of God, the same power as that invested and worked in Jesus when he was raised from the dead. We're told we also have authoritative power in Jesus. And that's what this whole section that the rest of the passage is all about where God not only raised Jesus, but you have the same power that seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Which is another way of saying Jesus reigns over everything. He has authority over everything in this life and in the life to come. Over physical things and spiritual things. Over angels and demons and human beings. That there's no thing that can stand before him or against him. Because he is king and king over all. He has authority as the head over all things. And so just to close here. Do you know, dear friends, that you have power over your circumstances? You don't need to control everything because you have a Savior who does. You have power over spiritual opposition. You have the authority in Jesus to say no to temptation. And by that, I don't simply mean temptation to do bad. I also mean temptation not to believe the promises of God. The temptation to question God and doubt Him when the going gets rough. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are not defeated. You are not defeated. You have the power of God, the incomparably great, all-surpassing might, hyper-mega-dynamite of God given to you. You have power because you are united to this very same Jesus. This power that gave you life in the first place, this power that extends your life on into the future, this power to face trials, this power to believe. Do you know you have this? 
Notice Paul doesn't say, I want you to get this. He says, do you know you already have it? Maybe the hardest thing to believe. It's our prayer today, along with the apostle, along with God's word, that in Jesus that we would grow in knowledge, that we would grow in hope, that we would grow in our understanding of the power of Jesus that is given to us. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us a fresh outpouring of your spirit because that's who we really most need right now. A spirit that can open the eyes of our hearts to see all these things, to see you from whom all these blessings flow. Do that now and electrify our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.